looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible and don't know where to turn, you can just relax. It'll be up on the screen and you can follow along there. I'm going to read the verse and then we'll set a little bit of context and dive into it. Let me uh, open in prayer. God, as we take this time, I pray that all of us here would enter into this time of listening and um, openness before you with prayer and focus. We come before you and recognize that by your spirit, you can use the words of the Bible to change and transform us, to open our minds and open our hearts so that we can see Jesus and see the hope that we have in and through him and we can see new ways to live and how to leave behind um, patterns of brokenness and sin and wrongdoing and self-centeredness. God, thank you for that. And we pray that regardless of all the distractions that are rumbling around in our heads and in our hearts this morning, I pray that you would give us focus, that you would just give us a supernatural attention to be able to hear these words and that, Holy Spirit, you would just um, drive them into our hearts and use them to uh, challenge us where we need challenge and encourage us where we need encouragement and bring life to where we need life, God. We surrender these things to you and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. This is the Apostle Paul writing to an early group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they might have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So in our study through the book of Ephesians, um, Paul has been tackling the big picture of the Christian life. Chapters one, two, and three are very much a view of the Christian life from 30,000 feet, what God has done for us, um, who we are now in Christ, now that we have been adopted. For those of us who have turned our lives over to Jesus, what does that look like? And as chapter four unfolds, what he's beginning to do is tease out the implications for everyday life. He's saying, okay, if this is true, if this is what God has done and this is who you are, how now should you live in your role as an accountant, within your marriage, with your neighbor, as an employer? So you could say he's transitioning from talking about big picture theological truths of Christianity to helping the Ephesians understand what it means to be a Jesus follower within their context of the city of Ephesus, which was a very, very... Um, pagan culture, very affluent in many ways. And so what we're trying to do is to look at God's word to this church and then say, okay, if this is what God is saying to this church, how does that, uh, how does that impact us? What are the lessons that we should learn from this? 
And whenever we try and connect the dots between theology and practice, what's the truth about who God says he is and we are and how to live and actually living it out, that's called discipleship. That's a word that I often use. Um, Christians in the New Testament are more commonly called disciples than they are Christians. Um, Because for some people, Christianity or to call yourself a Christian means maybe little more than someone who believes abstractly some theological truths about God or about faith or about the Bible. But a disciple has a slightly different emphasis. A disciple has kind of a a leader-learner emphasis or an expert apprentice or a mentor-mentee. A disciple is saying, I see in Jesus the full revelation of who God is. And when Jesus says, come follow me, leave your old life behind and learn to live into my new vision of life and freedom and love, a disciple is saying, I wanna learn how to do that. I don't just wanna believe certain things. I don't just wanna mechanically go through the motions, go to church and pray and do some um, rituals that aren't really tethered to real life. I wanna follow Jesus into the fullness of life. And I'm trying to learn from Jesus how to walk like he did. Now, I might be doing that as a 21st century person in a very complex world, but a disciple is someone who's taking seriously Jesus' call to follow him. And I like the term discipleship because it sort of holds my feet to the fire. Because again, when some people hear the term Christian, they can just hear someone who's religious, and what they mean by that is someone who holds high standards of morality maybe, or or they're just kind of into moralism. Big lists of do these things, don't do these things. Um, but a disciple of Jesus is different because a disciple is someone who's trying to pattern their life further and further into Jesus' example because they believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that he is fully God and fully human. He perfectly reveals the heart and nature of God the Father while also simultaneously showing us what true, redeemed, image-bearing humanity looks like. And so we follow Jesus because he is fully God and fully man. And he's opened up a way to leave behind our life of sin, our life of missing the mark and being stuck in patterns and brokenness that keep us back from what God wants into new life and forgiveness and redemption. And I think as a disciple, what I try and do is keep things relatively simple. Someone in Mark 12 said, Jesus, of all the commandments... 613 commands in the Old Testament law or instruction from God. Of all of these, which, are the, which is the most important? Like, like you're calling people to follow you, Jesus, but what does that mean? Does that mean the Sabbath commandments come first? Do the purity commandments come first? What, what's, what's the hierarchy of priority if we really want to honor God? And he said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these things. And another time he teaches this, Jesus says, all, all the other commandments hang on those two. And so for me, I think it's helpful and challenging for me to think about that following Jesus is an invitation into an adventurous, challenging, courageous, wholehearted pursuit of growth across at least four dimensions of my life. 
that I use to just kind of summarize the whole thing. Heart, relationships. Soul, prayer, worship, interiority. Mind, understanding truth, but specifically God's truth in scripture and understanding what it means to honor him and live out of that truth. And then strength, giving and serving. To understand that the fundamental posture of my heart is to become more and more like Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'm trying to push that kingdom ethic out and through all the different dimensions of my life, as, as Rick referred to in terms of time, energy, gifts, talents, resources. And so what I try and do is usually every month, I just write down on a piece of paper, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and just try and bring awareness to the areas that I want to challenge myself in or grow in. And uh, this month, this is kind of what I'm doing in my relationships. I'm really challenging myself to bring greater vulnerability to bear in terms of my sharing. I'm trying to move beyond, how's it going? Oh, good, you know, trying to move past some of the cliches and trying to really own how I'm doing and share that with people. And then where there's higher trust relationships, like in freedom session or with my wife or close friendships to try and push past the reflective, oh, you know, things are okay, and really own and be vulnerable about where I'm at. In the area of soul, I continue to do freedom session on Tuesday nights and do the work of prayerfully working through the workbook, which is really powerful and uh, really driving me to deeper prayer and to worship. In the area of mind, something that I would commend to you is to search out the Bible Projects podcast. I've shared some Bible Projects videos on Sunday before. I often share them in Summit. They're really good five to eight minute videos that highlight a theme or a book of the Bible. Really helpful, especially for those of us who didn't grow up in the church like myself and feel like we're kind of playing catch up and we hear some stories in the Bible or books and we're like, I don't really know how to make sense of the Bible. The Bible Project on YouTube is a great resource to kind of get caught up to speed really quick. A next level to that is their podcast, which is a little bit more of a deep dive. They're 45 to one hour long conversational segments between, um, oh, Tim and I forget the other guy's name, um, who kind of have conversations around certain themes of scripture and uh, they are really, really helpful. They'd probably be at the level of a first-year um, Bible college or university introduction to New Testament, Old Testament. Really easy to listen to because it's not lecture format. It's more conversational. Yeah, the, you know, the text says this, and then the other guy kind of plays the, well, wait a second, that doesn't really make sense to me, or I would, I would never use that word. I don't get it. What do you mean by redemption? I'd never use that word, or sin the right word to use here, da, 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 or what does this mean? Really, really helpful resource, so I'd commend that to you. You can just Google the Bible Project podcast and get it that way. And then strength shoeboxes. Um, yeah, just being able to help build that habit into our children and to recognize that this is a gospel pattern that God has given us so much, and so we look for ways through which to bring good news to the poor, um, whether it's poor materially or poor spiritually. And so these patterns of heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is just one way that I kind of use a bit of a grid to keep myself accountable and to challenge myself to grow in my faith. And so I'm using this as a way to say, how do I continue to grow into making Jesus' priorities my own and to live into his kingdom vision and not allow our culture's vision of the good life to crowd out what Jesus says is actually the good life. And in our text today, that is really what Paul is doing. He's really bringing things down and starting to say, okay, in terms of the church, as the gathered people, as brothers and sisters sisters in Christ, I've said all these things about 
what God has done for us in Christ. I've explained to you who you are in Christ. You're now a new creation. You're a saint. You're no longer a sinner. You have a new identity. You're adopted as sons and daughters of God. Now you need to live into that new life. And so what he's doing is in verses 25 to 32, he's going to offer a lot of compare and contrasting, kind of mirrored um, virtues or vices to virtues that he's saying, this was part of your old life before you knew Jesus, and this is what God wants to see birthed in you in the new life. And before we get to these things, uh, three things to note just as you're moving through them, because this is really important to talk about. The first thing is that Christian maturity isn't simply just the absence of sin or vices in our life. Some of you may have grown up where, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the message you received is, what does it mean to be a good Christian? Well, a good Christian or a maturing Christian is someone who just doesn't, right? Smoke, swear, have sex before marriage, just keep filling in the blanks. But one's goodness is defined by what you don't do. And Dallas Willard calls this, um, very much tongue-in-cheek, kind of the gospel of sin management. That for some people, they were not told a full gospel and they were just told basically what it means to grow in Jesus is just to not do bad things. And as you're going to see in this passage, that is not the vision for the Christian life that God has for his people. And that was a real turning point for me because certainly when I became a Christian, that's what stood out to me is I'm not supposed to do these things. So I tried really, really hard not to do those things and my spiritual life took on an entirely new focus when I realized, oh, it's not just about not sinning. It's about learning to live into certain virtues and becoming Christ-like. That's actually my pursuit. And this is what Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul is gonna emphasize here. And the second thing that follows from that is, again, is that God doesn't just save us from something. He saves us from something to something else. What do I mean by that? Well, again, for some people, you may have picked up along the way that the essential plot line of Christianity is that we were doing bad things. Um, God needed to punish us for doing bad things. Punishment ultimately means separation from God forever. Jesus died so that that punishment could be dealt with and so that when we die, we can go and live with God forever. That can be a very simplified version of what some people picked up in church. And at the heart of that is really this idea that what God is primarily interested in is just dealing with our sin and God is, uh, the Christian life is essentially about just getting out from under sinful condemnation or judgment. But as the biblical story unfolds, what's very clear from the first book of the Bible to the last is that God, yes, wants to rescue and deliver us from sin, which is broadly speaking, missing the mark and not living in the way that loves God and loves other people, but it's to rescue us from that state and give us a new identity to live into a new kind of life. And again, that's a very different vision. And when I began to realize, oh, my calling as a Christian is not just to get saved so that I can go to heaven after I die, and then the time in between just not do bad things, but there's actually a kind of life that God is inviting me into here and now. Jesus called it abundant life. Sometimes it's called eternal life. 
life with God. I'm learning. God wants to repair my relationship with him, my relationship with other people, my relationship in my own self-identity, my relationship with my vocation in the world. That led to a huge and exciting vision for my Christian life. And lastly, notice that as we go through these verses, Paul is going to presume that we have to actively participate in this new life. It's not something that just happens to us. We have been saved. We are now saints. We now have a new identity as sons and daughters of God, but we have to grow into that new identity. We have to grow into that new kind of life. And he's challenging Christians to participate in that. He says, you must put off. These are, you, you have a part to play. You have to cooperate with God. And the implication is that the Holy Spirit guides, the Holy Spirit is going to convict, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. But if the posture of your heart is one of just neutrality and you're just like, eh, I'm just kind of going through the motions, we can't expect to see much growth, right? Like if my kids woke up in the morning and didn't come down and I went upstairs after an hour and they're just standing there in their underwear, and if my son was doing that, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I was waiting for you to dress me. I'm like, well, you're old enough to dress yourself. Like you, I've provided clothes and like, you know, yeah, I know, but I was just, I thought you would do it for me. It's like, no, these virtues are things that we are called to participate in putting on. We can't do it without God's power and strength, but neither can we just kind of go through life and be like, well, if something's important to God, that he'll just kind of beam it into my life. We have to be following Jesus, pursuing Jesus. So on Remembrance Day, I thought, you know, Certainly what's happening here is Paul is challenging the Ephesians to realize you have been, you've been given a new uniform. You are now a part of the Salvation Army. You are part of the army of those who have been redeemed and are now going out into the world and bringing gospel-bearing love and joy and peace into your relationships, into your community. And now that you've been given a new uniform, you, are, you have a new status as a soldier for Jesus, what you have to do is live into that vision and kind of live into that uniform, right? The moment you are become a part of the Canadian military, at the moment you put on that uniform, you are a soldier, but you're not the full capacity of the soldier you will be in a year from now or five years from now because the Canadian military is going to train you to maximize your capacity as a soldier. And that's a good analogy to the Christian life. We are saved when we turn our lives over to Jesus, but then the Holy Spirit, through God's word and through Christian practices, begins to train us up into Christ-likeness so that a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, we are a more competent soldier. We're more competent at loving God and loving other people. And so what are the features of this new uniform? I'm gonna go through these pretty quickly. What are the features of this new uniform that God says, through Paul, this is the old uniform you wore. These are your old civilian clothing. Now that you are in Christ, this is what you are to put on. The first thing he says is, I want you to put on truth and discard falsehood, from falsehood to truth. Verse 25, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And falsehood here has a broad linguistic um, range. It doesn't just mean speaking lies. It means operating out of deception. You can do that maliciously where you're actively deceiving and lying, um, 
But again, in the context of Paul coaching a church on how to behave with each other and how to live into loving each other, it probably has a lot more resonance that we might use the language of, we have to learn to stop kind of playing pretend and wearing masks, where we're not, you know, capital D deceiving each other. We're not maybe actively lying, but we're also not speaking the truth about where we are. We're not reaching out for help. We're not uh, confessing our shortcomings. We're not quick to ask for forgiveness. The, the typical exchange, forget about Sunday morning, even in small group or in more settings is, how's it going? Oh, things are fine. Things are good, right? Like that's falsehood. If you're not doing good and you say, I'm doing good, that's, that's offering falsehood to someone. It's not truth telling. But followers of Jesus are to be people who, yes, are to be absolutely seen as honest and reliable and their word should be trustworthy because Jesus himself said, I am the truth. So you can't follow Jesus by trying to hold on to, well, you know, I'm truthful-ish. You know, it's like this has to be a commitment to my whole personhood to live out truthfulness. But that's more, again, than just not lying. It's about being honest with God in your prayer life, not just saying nice things to God in prayer, but expressing frustration, anger, disappointment, lament, whatever it is, and doing that with other people. Now, again, I know that that doesn't mean you do that with every single person. There's relational boundaries and trust things, but there has to be people that we can be completely truthful with, and we need to pursue that. Truth is hard because it demands a tremendous amount of courage, Falsehood and deception is born of cowardice. And truth is challenging because truth begets accountability. If I'm honest with you about where I'm at, about who I am, about what I'm struggling with, about where I'm losing hope or feel like I'm losing ground, there is an accountability both from me owning that and from the other person saying, oh, wow, I'm being entrusted with that. How can I love and support that person? But truthfulness and learning to walk out of falsehood. Paul says, that's just a non-negotiable for a Christian. It's challenging, but we're to leave behind falsehood and put on truthfulness in our dealings with one another. The second thing he says is we need to move from anger to peace. And I think what's, what's sort of alluded to there is reconciliation. Again, the context is speaking to a church of Jews and Gentiles who have both become Christians but are now really trying to move through the awkwardness of how do we worship together and build community together and love each other because someone who comes from a very serious religious background like a Jew and a very pagan background as a Gentile who are both now in Jesus there's just a lot of cultural and ethnic and religious barriers that it would just be so much easier to be like Gentile church, Jewish church. And Paul says, no, that's not the vision. God wants there to be one man in Christ. So he says, you need to move from a place of anger to peace. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. I've said this before, but in verse 26, I think it's really important to recognize that anger is not listed in scripture as a sin right? That the wording is, in your anger, don't sin. Anger is an appropriate emotion some of the time. If you go through life and you aren't feeling angry, again, it's because you're either going through life with blinders or you're not being honest with God or with other people about 
the state of the world. Or you, or you somehow secluded or numbed yourself to the pain and injustice of the world. Jesus had times where he was very angry. All the great leaders and, and positive examples in the scriptures are people who at times expressed anger. So what we're not being told here is, anger, that's a bad emotion, so just stop it. It's in your anger, do not sin. Anger isn't a sin, but anger that is kind of nursed and um, allowed to be, allowed to incubate and morph into resentment and bitterness and wrath against other people, that is clearly a sin in scripture. And I know that's a, that's a, that's a real fine edge to understand where does one end and the other begin that's an issue of the heart that we always need to be open to allow the Holy Spirit to challenge us with. But the verse recognizes that there is such a thing as righteous anger or Christian anger. Um, but we have to also be careful to not let anger gain a foothold, to become a fundamental operating posture of our heart. And so we can be angry, but we need to not sin out of that anger. Do not let the sun go down, which means as quickly as possible, process and deal with that anger. We'll talk about that in a second. And don't give the devil a foothold. And that's interesting because Paul says, within the context of the church, one of the most spiritually dangerous postures you can hold is one of kind of a swarming anger within you. He doesn't use that language for a lot of other things. But as it relates to anger, he says, you got to deal with this. You got to take this really seriously because otherwise the enemy of your faith can gain a foothold. And I think this, the subtext is can gain a foothold through anger in a way that he can't in other sins. So this is really serious. Now I do want to say it's really important to be wise and strategic in terms of how we approach anger and in terms of how we understand it. Because if you're like me, your emotional response is to kind of stuff it or to be, uncomfortable, be made uncomfortable by it and to minimize it dismiss it, rationalize it away, not a big deal. And, um, and what I mean by strategic is that anger is, for the most part, a secondary emotion. So we feel something else, we don't identify what it is, but it, gets, um, it comes up in our hearts and in our imagination is anger. So I might be fearful of something, but the presenting emotion is anger. I might feel really embarrassed by something, but the presenting emotion is anger. And so we have to become wise and say, okay, to actually deal with my anger, it won't help to simply say, oh, I'm angry. Okay, Jeff, stop being angry. That's gospel of sin management, right? Oh, bad emotion, just stop it. You will not be able to willpower yourself out of any sin and certainly not anger. You have to become wiser and strategic to say, okay, if anger is a symptom, it's coming out of something else, what is that other thing? And sometimes that takes a lot of time. I mean, I can sometimes go weeks and even months before I have that aha moment of, I've really been living with a low level of frustration and it's all because of this. And it takes me a long time. Other people are faster to get to that realization. But learning to ask myself, what's the issue behind the issue? What's the emotion underneath anger that's driving this? And then I can at least, even if I don't know all the different ways I can deal with it, I can at least begin starting to talk to God about it, maybe talk to a few friends about it, begin to process it, have honest conversations, 
I'm sure if you Google or talk to other people that you know about ways that they can process anger, you'll find a lot of stuff. So I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to say to recognize that to be angry should signal us that something is wrong and we need to be wise and strategic in addressing it and not minimizing it and not suppressing it and not rationalizing it or dismissing it away because that's where anger stays inside and it incubates and it morphs into something that is truly spiritually dangerous. We need to be cultivating peace, but the way we do that isn't by simply pushing anger away uh, in that kind of foolish, reactive way, but to say, what is actually going on in my heart and my soul? Number three, from stealing to generosity. Anyone who's been stealing must no longer steal, but they must work doing something useful with their hands that they might have something to share with those in need. So the first level of this is if you've been stealing, for whatever reason, whether you feel like you're justified or not, whether it's like direct, I'm taking someone else's property, I'm not paying taxes that I should, doesn't matter, don't steal. But again, the pattern for the Christian life isn't just stop stealing, just don't steal. That's kind of like the first level of basic obedience in the right direction. The next is begin working as meaningfully and as productively as you can. That's what God's will for you is. It's not just to not steal, but to become productive. But it's not just to not steal in order to become productive. It's don't steal, become productive so that you can provide for your own needs, but so that you have extra to share with other people. So again, there's this growth presumed for the Christian. You won't just stop doing sin. You're going to turn your back from sin to begin living into God's life in such a way that you're beginning to overflow with resources of time, energy, and money so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's the trajectory that everybody is supposed to be on if they're following Jesus. John Stott says this. He says, notice that it's not enough that the thief stops stealing. Let him start working, doing honest work with his hands, earning his own living. And then he will be able to not only support himself and his family, but also give to those in need. And so instead of sponging on the community like thieves do, he's going to start contributing to it. And he says, notice that the vision here is that Christ intends to transform every burglar into a benefactor. So one of the patterns that we can look for in our own spiritual life is, as I've been following Jesus for six months or a year or five years or 50 years, have I been living into that generous vision? Well, I don't, I don't steal. Like, I don't, I, I come by my money honestly. Okay, that is great, but that is insufficient. Christ-like maturity would say, I used to th- steal from God and other people in these ways, and I stopped doing that, but then I started making an honest living, working hard, doing the best that I can, and as God's prospered me, I've been able to be generous. And there's only two ways you can do that, really. You can either just be in a situation where you can make scads of money and just live how you want, but there's, you make so much money, there's still an excess and you can give from that excess. That's one way, that's totally legitimate. Or you're going to have to say, here's basically the range of what I make and I'm going to intentionally learn over time to live, create a gap between the lifestyle I could afford and what I'm going to live at so that I have more for other people. And that's, that's the pattern of my life, um, is I've tried to, over time, learn to live more simply so that 
any access that we have, we can be more generous towards our church and towards other ministries and mission opportunities. Number four, from rotten words to words that build up. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Bible again and again says, our words are powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. In James 3, verses 5 to 10, there's this huge rant that James goes on about how the tongue is so dangerous and every kind of animal is being tamed and has been tamed by man, but no one's been able to tame the tongue and it can set forests on fire. People can have literally destroyed their lives through careless words. And he says, out of the same mouth, even for Christians, can come praise to God and cursing towards someone else in your Christian community. And he says, my brothers and sisters, this, this shouldn't be. And this explains why sins that, to be honest, we tend to minimize or be like, well, yeah, they're wrong, but they're, they're not that bad. There's like way worse sins than gossip and slander, sarcasm, malicious talk. Unwholesome talk is actually a word in the Greek from sapros, which means rotten. It has it at the idea of this is fruit that has gone rotten. So it's not like, unwholesome talk isn't like, oh, swearing, right? It might have an implication there, but it's actually words that are just rotten, that don't give life, that bear the marks of death. Sarcasm that is used to cut people. Slander that is used to uh, hurt and defame other people. Gossip. These are things that are treated as big deals within Scripture. And Paul says, that was part of your old life when you used to live in the futility of your thinking as a Gentile. Now as a Christian, you need to, in, this, in this new uniform, your words have to bring life, have to build other people up. Right? This gets really practical. Is there a relationship in your life where you've let the verbal pattern become one of dishonoring the other person, predominantly being sarcastic and sort of, even if it's playfully vindictive, cruelty or harshness or criticism? What might it look like to speak in a way that intentionally seeks to honor that person, highlights their strengths, uplifts and encourages them, and instead of pointing out where they've missed the mark or where they've failed, pointing out where they've grown and where you see development and where you see maturity and where you see courage. Paul says that's to be normative for the Christian. We should use words that build up and put aside rotten words. Number five, we need to move from grieving the Holy Spirit to participating with the Spirit. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This idea that the Spirit isn't just some impersonal force like the force from Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved and it's a sense of being disappointed. I think an analogy might be that the Christian life is like, life in the Spirit is learning to live with the current of how the Spirit is guiding and pushing you forward. And as a Christian, you can swim with that tide and do so imperfectly, and you might get off course, but you're overall saying, I want to go in this direction, or you can plant your feet in the river and say, I'm not moving, or worse still, you can start swimming against the stream 
and say, in this area of my life, maybe not in every area, I'll cooperate with you, Holy Spirit, like in these areas, but in this area, yeah, I'll do my own thing, thank you very much. And the scripture says that grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, that, this is not a salvation issue, meaning if we're living like this, you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that at all. I think that's why the language of grieving is used. It's used to say, you can't live like that, willful, deliberate disobedience in an area that God has shown you how to live or how to move forward in. You can't say no to that and reject it and do your own thing as a Christian, but then expect to have a strong sense of connection and fullness and joy and you fill in the blank in terms of richness of your Christian experience any more than you could have a, a friendship with someone or a marriage with someone where you said, here's the vows, here's what I agree to, but in these areas over time, while I might certainly honor the friendship and the marriage in these ways, I'm gonna live completely counter to those values and those vows over here, but I'm still expecting us to be ever more growing in an intimacy and knowledge and of each other and joy and meaning and purpose. It won't happen because you're grieving the other person in the relationship. And so Paul is saying, you need to learn to understand what the flow of the Spirit is and then to walk in that. And then as the temptation comes or the realization comes, I've been holding my feet in the stream and I haven't been participating with the Spirit to go to God with that and to release that. And so this isn't a salvation issue as much as it's just a quality of life experience with God. And for some of us, if we're honest, we might say, yeah, I feel like God's a million miles away And part of that is not because God's a million miles away. It's just that we have deadened our own heart and sensitivity spiritually because we've been harboring certain sins in our life, right? You can't harbor an ongoing sin of pornography or an ongoing sin of gossip or an ongoing sin of greed where you know it's wrong, but like, oh, I'm I'm pretty solid in some of these other areas. So like it kind of balances itself out, not a big deal. That is still living in a state that is grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And it will interfere with the quality of your Christian life. So that's why taking times to regularly reflect and pray and say, God, bring to light anything in my life that is not from you and help me to leave it. Help me to participate with you. That's why it's so, so important. And lastly, and this is kind of a summary point, Paul says, I want you to move from ill will to goodwill. Just kind of an umbrella posture of the heart with each other move from a posture of suspicion and hesitation and low trust and wanting other people to get their comeuppance to one of goodwill. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let me run you through the words he uses. Bitterness, pikra, literally means a sour spirit, like a sour, sour speech sour spirit, something that's been embittered and resentful, something that's been pickled. Wrath, thymos, is a passionate rage. Anger, orge, is a settled and sullen hostility. It's just a coldness towards other people. Clamor, kroge, describes people who essentially move into fits of shouting or screaming as a general posture for their relationships. They just can't, whenever they're confronted or whenever anything happens, they just, they're explosive in their rage. Slander, blasphemia, means speaking evil of other people, especially behind their backs. 
And so you're defaming or destroying their reputation. And then lastly, malice is kakia. And again, it just means the sense of ill will. And it's hard to translate, but it probably has at its heart the sense of you are imagining and... Um, You're sort of uh, imagining different ways through which you could bring cruelty or harm to other people. The Old Testament talks about the fool who plots evil against his neighbor. That's kakia, malice. You're actually using your imagination and your energy to figure out how could I make that person's life worse? How could I undermine them actively doing evil? And in all these things, Paul says, these are horrible serious sins, like not just like, oh, mistake, these are sins that we each individually need, need to take responsibility for and turn away from. They need to be confronted and totally rejected. Now, I will end by saying this. I know for some people here, because there's always people like this in any group that I speak to, probably in the first five, I don't think I'm gonna get much pushback. No one wants to live out of anger. They want peace. But in this last one, this can be a sticking point for people because I've talked to people who say, Jeff, that's great for you to say malice. I shouldn't want to plot evil against people, but you don't know what was done to me. And if you knew my story have been done to me, you would recognize that the malice that I'm willing to admit that I hold is absolutely justified. Because my malice towards this person or to this group of people, I feel is legitimate because I was on the receiving end of evil. I was on the receiving end of abuse. I was on the receiving end of harm And pastorally, what I would want to say to you, if that's you this morning, is that I do understand in part that malice is very tempting. When you have been the recipient of acts that are cruel and selfish and deeply cowardly and abusive, I understand how it feels unjust to say, how am I supposed to respond to that? in love or in forgiveness or graciously? How do we face that stalemate of the soul? Well, I think Paul tells us that the bomb for that, the bomb, the healing bomb for that is to understand and to reflect on Christ's love for you. You know, in Luke 23, when Jesus is being crucified, he prays to the Father and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Even as they're dividing up his clothes and casting lots. And he's not saying, oh, they're unaware that they're crucifying me. They understand they're being cruel. They, they just don't care. But he's offering a prayer in recognition that they don't really get it. They don't, they don't see me for who I am. They don't see the big picture of what they're doing. They don't understand how they're bringing judgment and condemnation on them on themselves they are blind and numb and dumb and lacking awareness remember the words that Rick and Kevin 
have been speaking about over the last few weeks in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Talked about how those who do not follow Christ live within the futility of their own thinking. There's a futileness to trying to live life without God. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God. And there's this ignorance that is in them. Not that they're dumb, but there's just a lack of awareness of the greater picture of the harm they're inflicting and how they're living. And so we have to understand that often those who harmed us in those kinds of ways did not do so out of a full understanding of what they were doing. It doesn't minimize your pain, doesn't make insignificant your wounds. It doesn't, and I also know it doesn't automatically take away your malice. Oh, I, I understand that these are the psychological and spiritual and so, sociological factors. Oh, okay, not a big deal then. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's the first part, is to understand that often, that understand that God himself was at the mercy of people who didn't really understand what they were doing and lived out of that cruelty and that malice. But then, Paul says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. The word forgiving here is the word charizomenoi, which literally means acting in grace towards another person. It says, act in grace towards each other, even towards those who have operated out of malice towards you. Act in grace towards them, remembering how Jesus, how God, through Jesus, acted in grace towards you. What do you mean? Well, this is kind of the, the key to all of it, is the gospel, the central plot line of Christianity. We can be free from holding maliciousness in our hearts to other people when Jesus' love transforms our heart and when our understanding of how that love was secured begins to play out in our imagination and lives. Right? Consider how God dealt with you when you were blind and numb and dumb and insensitized or desensitized. When you were darkened in your understanding, where you lived life on your own terms, or maybe when you were living life completely counter-stream to God, you weren't just ambivalent towards God, you might have been actively spiteful and malicious towards God, living with your middle finger to the sky, as it were, and saying, I'll live life on my own terms, thank you very much. What did God do towards you when you were in that state? That's the gospel, the incarnation, he came close. He didn't walk away and say, oh, you made your bed, you lie in it then, see ya. He comes close in the incarnation to call us, especially the worst of us, the tax collectors and the sinners who are living completely counter to God's will. And then he sacrifices himself on our behalf. He takes the hit for us. Then he rises again victorious and says, I will give this gift of eternal life to anybody simply because of grace who's willing to receive it. You don't even have to earn it. You can just receive it by faith. And then he calls us out of sin and death and condemnation into a new life of hope. And all of that, the Bible said, he did this while we were still sinners. Jesus didn't die for you and go, 
jump through all these hoops because you had proven yourself worthy. While, you, while we as a humanity were acting maliciously towards God, God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So two questions would be, one, do you know that? Like, Do you understand that that is the, the point of Christianity? Is that you need that love? You were made for that love? Do you understand the implication of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for you personally? Because this story is the story, it's a plot line, it's the narrative thread that you've been searching for your whole life. And it's the only thing that's gonna provide healing and freedom, the kind that you're looking for, that can begin and be really established here and now, and then continue on forever. And if you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this is a morning to remember that, to remember what Jesus did for you. Remember that at your worst, at your most malicious, Jesus gave you his best. He gave you himself. To rescue and to redeem you because you were treasured in his eyes. You're loved. You're worth dying for. And he died for you to ensure that your worst and at your most malicious, and at your most lost, that that moment, that phase, that season of life, that that isn't gonna be the end of your story, nor is it gonna be your story's defining feature. Your story's gonna be redeemed. He didn't just save you from that story, he's saving you into an entirely new one. And when that truth begins to take root in your heart, then you're gonna want to find your, then you will find yourself wanting to honor Jesus more than by simply not doing bad things. What you will want to do is leave behind a pattern of life that is rotten in its core and instead learning in every sphere, however slowly, going with the flow of the Spirit and saying, lead me into your new kind of life, Jesus, so that I leave behind the old and I experience eternal life beginning right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for new life that you call us into. You offer us a new uniform, God, new clothing of character. Give us the strength and the grace that we need to set aside the old clothes, the, the, the habits and the pattern that are getting us nowhere except driving us into the ground. Lead us into freedom and newness of life. For your name's sake, amen.